My good people, greetings. How are you? How you feeling? Hope you had another fun-filled, enjoyable summer weekend as we usher in the month of August. That's right, the dog days are coming, but here to deliver some cool sports talk for you is none other than your host, yours truly, Jay Reels, here on the latest edition of the Jay Reels Podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome aboard. Hope you come back for many, many more down the road. And for those who have been with me on this journey from episode 1 to now 83, I welcome you guys back. It's Monday, August the 5th in the year of our Lord, 2019, and here's what I have on tap for you this week. Carmelo Anthony, he wants to get back into the NBA, but does the NBA want him? You'll get my two cents on that, on the former Nick Nugget, Oklahoma City Thunder, and Houston Rocket, if he has still enough in the tank to be on an NBA roster this coming season. The NFL exhibition season, the whole slate opens up this Thursday. I get you had the game last week, the whole Fame game at Denver and Atlanta, But everything that's gone on off the field, whether it's Tom Brady getting back in the mix, some of the Hall of Fame speeches, etc., I'll cover all that later on in the podcast. But it's baseball front and center right now. The New York scene, I tell you, if you would have told me two and a half weeks ago that there'd be two teams fighting for a playoff position, well, one is pretty much in cruise control and has pole position in the AL East and looking to get the top spot in the American League as far as best record overall. But with the Mets... I'm going to get into them a little bit later on. I'm still shaking my head as they're one game under. If you listened to the podcast last week, I said they have to be one over for me to get really serious. Forget about 500 because once you get to 500, it's almost that long race, that long uphill journey. And sometimes you could peter out at that and then just slide back. So I figured the one game over will give you not much margin for error, but a little bit better than 500. So my Met take is coming in about 10 minutes, but the Yankees... Pretty much returned the favor for what they did to the Red Sox or what the Red Sox did to them last week. Although they did salvage that last game up in Fenway the Sunday night. Since then, it's just been Yankee domination. They had a hiccup there that Tuesday night against the Arizona Diamondbacks. And pretty much from that point on, they haven't looked back. If you remember, Yankee fans, I'm sure the Red Sox fan remembers this. I believe it was the first Monday of August last year when the Red Sox swept the Yankees. Pretty much controlled the division, put it on lockdown, and the Yankees had to go the wild card route and eventually face the Red Sox in that American League Divisional Series, and we know what happened there. This time around, not only the Yankees pretty much could put their feet up in the AL East, but I don't think they're going to face the Boston Red Sox in the ALDS of 2019, considering the Red Sox, ever since that Sunday night game, they haven't won. They got swept by Tampa, and then they got swept by the Yankees here, And for all intents and purposes, their season right now is just about being swept out to sea at six and a half back of the wild card. And just to think, everybody thought with the Yankees not making any deadline deals, and even though the Red Sox made a trade for Andrew Kashner, which was no biggie, the grand scheme of things, but considering they couldn't procure a reliever, I'm sure the asking price was high, which Brian Cashman, GM of the Yankees, I'm sure could attest to, as I'll get to that in a minute. But going back to the Yankees, With the Red Sox now over and done with, and I get that the Yankee fans this morning, they're going to puff their chest out. Oh, we swept the Red Sox. Oh, they're buried. They were going to be buried regardless. I mean, they went into the series 10 and a half back, and I believe 12 in the loss, and now they're 14 and a half. So this wasn't a situation where the Red Sox were five back, and now they're nine, and it's pretty much all said and done. It was said and done going into that game Friday night. But, you know, if the Yankee fan wants to have their fun and poke at the Red Sox, I get that. All right, no problem. But here's the biggest thing that lies between a World Series title and falling short 
of getting that World Series crown. And we could talk about the starting pitching. Yes, I mentioned Brian Cashman not being able to procure a starting pitcher, which I'm sure was too rich for a lot of the other GMs that they were dealing with. Of course, you could think about the Mets and Brody Van Wagenen. I don't think as many discussions that they had leading up to July 31st, I don't think a deal was going to be imminent or on the horizon, whatever it may be. Yankees and Mets aren't going to trade one another, and it's more so a thing where the Yankees are open to it. It's just Jeff Wilpon and the Mets not being, which, all right, you can understand. You don't want to trade Noah Syndergaard, despite the fact you could get a close to a King's ransom for a guy who has two more years left on his contract, who certainly has the potential at 26, and we've already seen what he can do and what he's done, especially in the game yesterday against Pittsburgh. But even with a guy like Zach Wheeler, who was on a rental, I'm sure the asking price was still too high for one Brian Cashman. So when the deadline came and went, and interestingly enough, that Zach Grinke, a guy that pitched Wednesday afternoon at Yankee Stadium, was being traded to an American League powerhouse, and no, it wasn't going to be in the Bronx. It was actually going to be in Houston. And I get that maybe some Yankee fans were bent out of shape. Oh, what happened? Why couldn't we get him? Considering that they didn't have to give up two of their bigger prospects, the Houston Astros, that is, whether it's the outfielder Kyle uh, Kyle Tucker or the pitcher Forrest Whitley. But we all know that Zach Greinke, going back to his days of the Kansas City Royals, him playing in a hotbed, whether it's New York, Boston, Philadelphia, even St. Louis, he was going to steer clear from because of the anxiety issues. And I get a lot of that may have been 10, 12 years ago. But he's more of a West Coast guy. He's a guy that's going to play in a market that may be big like Houston, but certainly isn't the pressure cooker that it is in the Northeast or in some parts of the Midwest. So now with Grinke being in the Astro mix, certainly ratchets it up their expectations for 2019. And I said it last week and even the last couple weeks on the podcast, even with Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole, now you're going to add Zach Grinke to the mix. What are the Yankees going to counter with? I get that you have resumes in the postseason for guys like Masahiro Tanaka, for a guy like CeCe Zabathia. You don't have one for James Paxton, and you have a very small one with Jay Happ. So when you go up against these teams, especially if it's going to be Houston or if you even make it to a World Series with the Dodgers, whether it's uh, Hyunjin Ryu, Clayton Kershaw, or Walker Bueller, you're not going to have the horses to match those two teams in particular if the Yankees make it that far. I get that the bullpen is stacked and it's loaded, the whole nine. But we also know that in the postseason, the more familiarity you get to see from these pitchers, because if the Yankees are going to go into their bullpen in the fourth and fifth innings and bring in the Adovinos of the world and the Tommy Canelys, the Chad Greens, etc., you know, the 99-mile-an-hour fastball is going to look like 92. And those sliders will hang and those curves will float and, you know, timely hitting is going to beat good pitching any day of the week. But that's for October. We're not, we're not going to get that far ahead. But the one thing, besides the starting pitching, that you're going to be dubious if you're a Yankee fan heading into October and maybe even to November. Because I think the World Series, what is it? If it does go seven games, I believe it ends, whatever, November 1st. But the big thing that if you're a Yankee fan that you got to look at is this team's health. It's August 5th. It's not September 5th. I get it. It's certainly not September 25th. But this is now a year-long Crisis. It's almost as if this team has been snake bit throughout the course of the year. And yesterday, you had two guys, one including Gleyber Torres, who has not seen the IL this year, has a core issue that although he's making a trip to Baltimore based on what his dad said through Twitter, 
And we all know Gleyber Torres loves to hit in that ballpark, so he's going to do anything imaginable to get himself in the lineup. But you got to think of the big picture here. Is this a core issue that has plagued the guys of Aaron Judge and even Giancarlo Stanton a little bit? Even though Stanton was more of a shoulder, but there's been a lot of talk with all these injuries that he has experienced this year that who knows, maybe part of it has to do with his core. When you're looking at Aaron Hicks, who's now on the aisle with an elbow strain. Also, CeCe Zabathia, who hasn't come back. Gary Sanchez, who, although has been running the bases, and he's close to 100%, but at the same time, what are you going to get from him? He's already been on the DL a couple times this year. Edwin Encarnacion has a fracture in his wrist. He's on the shelf. Luke Voigt, with an oblique or a sports hernia situation. Who knows how much longer he's going to be out. These are things that... Granted, the Yankees had plenty of time and a cushion in the AL East where you got to give them credit that they could certainly nurse these injuries. They don't have to rush these guys back. They're certainly going to need them in September when it's time to ratchet it up to be able to get their timing, their game situations, everything ready for October. So like I said, this isn't mid-September where you're really going to be worried. But again, this has been a pattern that's happened pretty much from spring training to this moment. Look at Luis Severino. Look at Dylan Batances. And I get that Cashman's probably looking at those two guys as reinforcements considering he had not made any trades at the deadline and knowing that he needs some help in the starting rotation and certainly having an extra arm in the bullpen is going to help them heading into October. But are these guys going to be reliable from a health standpoint? Just like if Sanchez, Voigt, we know Judge has been on the shelf for two months this year. That's not to say these guys are going to start breaking down. DJ LeMahieu, who... Didn't play a couple of games early in the week against Arizona, although I had the two home runs against Sale. And even though Sale, he's not the same guy. I don't know what happened to Sale. I get last year, he had those injuries where he was on the shelf and certainly was not as effective as he has been in the past and in October of last year. But here it is this year. And what is he, 5-11? and 11? He's giving up home runs left and right. But to get off Sale, I digress. But this Yankee team, you wonder if they could be close to 100% for more for their core guys, their main guys to come October 1 that if they're not going to be able to do so, how's this team going to put together a run if they can't rely on their stud players to go chase that American League pennant and as well as the World Series? And like I said, you're already under the gun with the starting pitching. And before you can say, ah, oh, but Jay Reels, we got the bullpen again. Familiarity coming out of the pen. These hitters are going to see, and they have scouting reports and all that, and the Yankees do too. It goes both ways. But when you're looking at going into your bullpen in the fourth, fifth, sixth innings, you can't do that every game in the postseason. You're going to wear your bullpen out. The batters are going to get the advantage long-term because not only are they going to be gassed, but they're going to be able to see these pitches a lot better and know what's coming at them. So... Despite the fact that that's a concern, we don't know about the starting pitching, but the health is even that much more critical. And if you're Aaron Boone, I understand you want to appease everybody. You want to lovey-dovey, open arms. Hey, we could do this. We could do that. Everything is cool. All is great. You know how these managers are in this day and age. It's become a joke in that regard. But he's going to certainly have to take the temperature of these players and be able to give them the right playing time There's no need to rush any of these guys back. And that's a job that it may seem easy on the outside, considering that they had this cushion, that they were going to be able to have the luxury to shuttle in these players in and out when they're close to, if not 100% healthy. But 
it's got to be a concern. Now, that's not to say that they're not going to win the whole thing if these guys don't come back. If you don't see Stanton, I'm sure the Yankee fan doesn't want to see Stanton come back at this point. I get it. Because he fails in October, the boos are going to come raining down on him big time. You know, and one guy also failed to mention Domingo Herman. Remember, he was on the shelf too for some time this year. He's come back and he's pitched well. But to me, and I'm going to say this right now, August 5th, if he's pitching game two or whatever it is, you figured Tanaka would probably pitch game one. I, I, I'm looking at him as having the same situation Luis Severino experienced in the wildcard game against Minnesota two years ago. Where he's going to pitch a third of an inning or an inning of a third because the bright lights may be too big for him. But other than that, and those are big ifs. Huge ifs. Because the Yankees could be locked and ready to go come October 1st or whenever the postseason begins. And they won't have to worry about setting up their rotation for a wild card game because that's not going to happen. But the one thing that they certainly have to keep an eye on, and you wonder with this medical staff, the trainers, strength and conditioning, all that, these guys are playing a huge part here these last two months of the season. And as I said at the top, the dog days of August... If they haven't come yet, they're soon to arrive. There's probably going to be one stretch that we got in July where we had that weekend was 100 degrees. We're probably going to get that again or something close to it. And it's being able to push past that. And even though Aaron Boone yesterday, he did say that this team not only is physically tough, but it's mentally tough. Well, we're going to see how mentally tough this team is going to be come over those last seven weeks of the season. Now, granted, they're not going to play much. There's nothing really to play for. Other than those three games... In Dodger Stadium in three weeks from this past weekend, which are going to be fascinating. And I get you can't get crazy over a regular season series, interleague, so on and so forth. But a lot of people are going to look at that series as a precursor to what may happen in late October. And I'll be interested and fascinated to see how that's going to play out. But again, you can't base those three games on a regular season as a barometer of what to expect in October. We get it. It's totally different circumstances. For all we know, the Yankees will be 100% healthy and make it to October and the Dodgers get bounced out. Or... The Yankees don't even make it to the World Series. There's plenty of time to dissect this, to regurgitate it, whatever it may be. But if you're a Yankee fan, just sit tight, enjoy. It's been a great ride so far, considering you haven't had a lot of the big guns in the lineup. But if health is not a concern, if you're a Yankee fan and you don't think health is going to be a big issue with this team moving forward, then you got another thing coming. Because nobody's going to feel sorry for you. Nobody's going to look at your team and be, oh, we didn't have Judge, we didn't have Stan, we didn't have Sanchez. I look at, huh? Nobody's going to care. Did anybody care that Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson didn't play pretty much for the whole finals? Well, more so Durant and Thompson, but at the same time, we saw what happened there in that game six. And granted, it's Golden State, and here in New York, nobody cares about the Warriors, but Toronto won a title. So you can put all the excuses out there you want. It's not going to matter. Again, nobody's going to feel sorry for you. You play the games with who you have. And if you're the Yankees right now, you continue to put the pedal to the metal, but at the same time, you just get your guys back as close, if not 100%, and ready for October. And that's going to be the job of the manager. The GM to a certain extent, too, because remember, what you have here, with no waiver wire, you can't pick up any more players from now to the end of the year. So... Gonna be fascinating to see how this Yankee team responds, and they responded well. You cannot disagree, or you can't certainly look at that and get not give them credit. But we all know this is a marathon, 162 games, and then when you get to October, it's a whole new season. So we'll certainly continue to keep our eye and pulse on what's going to happen with the Yankees here, with their team, the injuries, etc., 
in the uh, days and weeks to come because these final seven weeks of the season, there's really going to be nothing to play for other than, which is big. I can't discount the fact that if they have home field throughout the AL, that's going to be enormous. You'd rather have that game seven in your building than to have to go down to Houston. And we all know what happened two years ago. They were down 3-2 and they went to Houston and we saw that play out. So that's what you have there with the Yankees. As far as the Mets are concerned, everybody knows the type of fan that I am. Not only do I live in the present, not only do I live in realism with a hint of cynicism, but I said last week and I said even the week before, you got to get me to 500 and even put the stakes up one more game higher by saying give me a game over 500 because the sprint to get to 500 I thought was going to be maybe a little bit too much for this Met team and even though the trade deadline came and went and Noah Syndergaard still on this team, Zach Wheeler still on this team, Todd Frazier still on this team, Jason Vargas is gone for a catcher that although from what we've heard or read he's a defensive catcher with no stick but his claim to fame is that he was the roommate of Jeff Wilpon's son in college so I guess that was a favor deal as much as it was a salary dump and I'm not worried about Vargas coming back to haunt us. Chances are he probably will because that's just typical Met fashion. There goes a little bit of the cynicism in me. But when you look at this team now, as they have the Marlins coming in for four games, they have a day-night doubleheader tonight, and then tomorrow and Wednesday afternoon, this is a time that even if they win three out of four, and you would hope, and as crazy as this to say because even six weeks ago, I said the team needs to start winning series. And they've won series. The team is now, what, 15-6 and six since the All-Star break. And here they are. They made up all these games. They're actually three games behind the wild card. And the one thing they got going for him over the next three days, think about this, Met fans. The one thing that's in their favor is that they play the Marlins, and the Marlins usually play the Mets tough. So you got to give them that. But they have them coming into their building reeling. They lost the two games in Tampa. And if somehow, somewhere to get three out of four, Washington is playing at San Francisco and Philly is in Arizona. So two of those teams are going to end up losing where the Mets could certainly gain. And who knows, come the weekend when the Nationals come to town, that's when the season's really going to begin. I understand that the Mets have been able to fatten up here a little bit with the underbelly of the schedule. And mind you, when they lost three out of four in San Francisco and a lot of people thought losing those just devastating games and extra innings the way they did, that that was going to be pretty much it for them in this 2019 season. Like How else would they come back considering that they haven't really righted the ship despite the fact that they've had their moments and they've had some significant contributions from players that nobody ever expected would be. But after that San Francisco game on July 21st, them being seven games back in the NL wildcard, again, I said, get me to one game over. And here we are two weeks later, and they're one game under on the cusp of hopefully getting a game over before the Friday night matchup, Steven Strasburg versus Marcus Stroman as of right now, to set off City Field for a weekend series. If you're a Met fan, no matter how you are, whether you're the most optimistic or most pessimistic, the one thing that at least you could wrap your arms around is that there's some meaningful baseball. And if you go back to one of the podcasts, probably in late June, I said the season was over. I said the season was done. And mind you, the Mets still have a monumental task here. 
I get that three games isn't 13 games. And it's certainly not seven. And they made it four games in two weeks. But they have to continue this. But if there's one thing you can hang your hat on, now despite the fact that the manager is different, this isn't Terry Collins. But this has a little bit of 2016 written all over. And the reason why I say that is because if you remember, said speaking of San Francisco, the Mets were one game under when Ioannis Cespedes came off of the DL and he hit a couple big home runs that Saturday game and even the Sunday night game, I believe that was Syndergaard where he pitched a shutout when they won 2-0 on a Sunday night. And from that point off, they took off. And that was in late August. And here they're working their magic late July into August. But here's the problem. As much as this has been such a turnaround for this team and the fan base has not been sucked in, and I'll be honest, I'm not sucked in because of this. After this stretch here with the Marlins, and I get that they played the White Sox where they swept them, and they won two out of three. And then the, the Friday night game, Stephen Matz didn't have it coming off that shutout. He pitched the week before against Pittsburgh, and the bullpen didn't help him out either. But they were able to bounce back nicely in both Saturday night where they came from behind to win, and then yesterday just took it to Pittsburgh behind the woodshed. But the problem here for the Met fan and for the Mets, period, that even if they get a game over and have a day off before that Washington series, have you seen that schedule? Granted, they have a ton of home games to close out the year, which is going to be imperative. And not to say that the Mets are world beaters at home, even though their record is 28-20, but it's been better than it has been pretty much since they've opened that stadium because they have not had a significant home field advantage or even played well at home since they've opened that building. But the one thing is, is that even after Washington, they go to Atlanta for three, they go to KC, which I understand a lot of the nostalgia is going to be the World Series of 2015, but please, these teams are shells of those 2015 teams, but then they come back and they have a ton of home games. In fact, looking at the schedule now, they will play 19 of 25 at home after the road trip that ends in Kansas City. 19 of 25. That's right. But here are those 19 to 25 games that they have at home. Three against Cleveland. Three against Atlanta. Three against the Cubs. And those road games that are sandwiched in with that 19 to 25. At Philly, at Washington. Then they come home after a day off and the weekend of the NFL season that kicks off, three against Philly, four against Arizona, who right now is ahead of the Mets in the wild card, and then three at home to close out their homestand against the LA Dodgers. So before the Mets fan gets all pumped up and all giddy, ready to go, all you have to say to yourself is look at that schedule because it is certainly going to be daunting. And it's not to say they can't beat Cleveland or they can't beat the Braves, and they've had trouble against the Braves or even the Cubs. We all know. And with the starting pitching the way it's set up, now knowing that Syndergaard and Wheeler are here and hopefully DeGrom will continue to be DeGrom, and Stroman is certainly a significant upgrade over Jason Vargas, but there are no guarantees that this team, and with that bullpen and with the way Edwin Diaz has been, that they are going to just cruise to a wildcard position and play one game in October at the least. So, Met fans, and again, not being cynical, not being jaded, just being real. So, if you're looking at a st- if you're looking at a position where the Mets, who have certainly dug themselves out of this hole, and they still have a little bit more digging to do, but even if they have a successful series here against the Marlins, that you think right away that all right, now we got Washington coming in, we should be able to beat them, and you're going to start prognosticating everything that's going to happen here with this wild card race. You got nothing coming.
at least we have some meaningful games to discuss and some meaningful games to kind of look at here just in the immediate future. Because we all know, just because you're 1 over 500 or at 500 doesn't mean that they're going to take off from here. The Mets have taken off and taken advantage of the schedule. But now the real fun begins with the real teams coming into town and the real teams that they're going to play against. And now we're truly going to find out what the team is all about here. Not only the course of this week with the Nationals coming in, but certainly going to Atlanta and then that homestand that I just mentioned, the 19-25, that will certainly be indicative of where this Met team is going to go here in 2019. All right, a couple other things before we talk about the wildcard races as far as the Mets are concerned. Now, Robinson Cano, he's expected to get an MRI. As of right now, it's what, 1.08 p.m. here in the East in New York. Don't know what the status is of that. It looks like he may have re-aggravated that hamstring that he had going back earlier in the season. We know that for whatever the reason, whether it's Brody Van Wagenen or Mickey Calloway just thinking that Robbie Cano is a cleanup hitter, I think it'd be good for him just to kind of be put on the shelf. He's had his moments here of late, especially the game against Chicago there in the uh, afternoon game. But with Cano and the way he's underperformed this year, it kind of be good for the Mets to bring back Jeff McNeil to play second base and kind of maneuver what the outfield is going to be with the team moving forward. Now, again, it's all predicated on how healthy or how bad this uh, MRI turns out to be in reference to his leg. But that's one thing you got to look out here if you're the Mets. Now, we get that Cano who's had these moments and flashes, although they've been few and far between. Why is he batting cleanup is beyond me. He needs to be put down in the order. Obviously, Pete Alonso hasn't had the big games that he's had pre-All-Star break. I understand people want to look at the home run derby as a factor of him not having the power numbers. And he's hit some home runs since the break. But the thing is, he's just not seeing pitches. And remember, Alonso used to bat two when Al Conforto's batting. So when he was batting behind McNeil, for whatever reason, he was seeing more pitches, better pitches, and obviously was being super productive. But now, him being a three-hitter with Cano at four, what kind of protection are you giving Pete Alonso. So we'll see what uh, happens there. Uh, I think it would be good if McNeil would be back at second base for some time. And I get they're going to have to put Cano back in the lineup ASAP considering the amount of money he's making and how many years he has left, etc. And then the other thing I got to look at here, Edwin Diaz, you wonder where his head is at. It seems like every time Diaz comes in, he's giving up a run, whether they have a big lead or not. And I don't know what happened after that first month. That first month, his ERA was 182, I believe, up until the middle of May, he was at 182. And since then, his ERA's been six. So could you imagine now the Mets are trying to slowly but surely get to the top of the wild card or inch that much more closer? And can you not see this or envision this playing out in your head to where you have a Friday night game or Saturday or the Mets are going to beat the Nats and here comes Edwin Diaz in a 3-2 game and then he gives up the game tying home run or worse, the go-ahead home run in any of these games. And then, as bad as it is, you don't have any trust in him up until this point. But what's going to happen when it's going to be a super tight spot and you're going to need Diaz to perform? You almost have to hope and pray and keep your fingers and legs crossed to see if he could just pull through here. And he has to have that cornerback in NFL. You know, when you have a cornerback, you you want him to have a bad memory because you don't want uh, him getting torched to the point where anytime you throw to that corner side, he's just going to get picked apart. Well, Diaz has to adopt that same mentality because if he's going to look at what has taken place here in the last two and a half months and just think that, all right, 
even though it's a new game, but I know I haven't pitched well and has all this pressure on him considering the year he had in Seattle last year. And as we all know, the, the way this trade is shaking down, it's, it's looking like the, one of being one of the all-time worst trades. And we understand that Diaz is here for years to come, and he was part of the mix here with this trade deadline as far as relievers looking to fortify some rosters, whether you were the Boston Red Sox, for one in particular, even the Milwaukee Brewers for that matter. But it was to me, it's just too soon to give up on him, not because of the trade sake, but even more so because he's young and he has so many years left before he heads into his big-time years as far as making big money is concerned. But you only hope that starting tonight or starting whenever it has been, that he gets his head on straight to the point where he could be as effective as he was in that first month of the season. If the Mets are going to win this thing, they need Edwin Diaz to be part of the solution and not the problem. And although that their starting pitching has been excellent and their relief pitching has been better, but we all know at the end of the day, if the closer can't get big outs and can't get big saves, this season's going to be lost one. Uh, that's all there is to it. So those are going to be my two big things right here. And of course, it centers around that trade because those are the two enormous pieces that came to New York in the offseason that has been much chronicled, et cetera, et cetera. But, and not to continue to shake a stick at this, but these are the two things that right now, if you're a Met fan, you're going to look at Cano's production and Diaz as far as not only where he is between his ears, but is he going to be capable to get those big saves when the Mets are trying to push through in this race and get to a wild card spot here in the NL? So that's what we have there with the Mets. As far as the trade deadline, it was very lackluster. I know the Grinky deal was big because of where he went, and the Astros didn't have to trade any of their big prospects, including or specifically their outfielder Kyle Tucker and the pitcher Forrest Whitley. But the Indians, Trevor Bauer, instead of going to the Yankees or going to a team that was going to be part of a pennant race, he gets traded to Cincinnati where Yasiel Puig goes to Cleveland. And then San Diego makes a trade there. Also, they're part of that three-team mix where Taylor Trammell was a big prospect. He goes to San Diego. And then Frenmil Reyes, an outfielder, goes to Cleveland. So it fortifies their lineup a little bit. And then as we saw last week, Puig was involved in that crazy brawl with Cincinnati and Pittsburgh where Amir Garrett runs off the mound charging toward the pirate dugout and just starts swinging for his life. He got eight games for that. Ton of suspensions. David Bell, the manager of the Reds, gets six games. Hurdle gets three. Pui got three. It was just a, a, one of those old-time 80s baseball brawls that you saw there in uh, Cincinnati. Uh, what was it? Uh, Tuesday night, the day before the deadline. And a lot of the other deals were small, but they were pretty impactful depending on how you look at it. Whether you're in Atlanta where you picked up three big relievers, or big in a sense that Shane Green's had a big year from Detroit. Mark Melanson, who has a resume, obviously formerly of the San Francisco Giants. Chris Martin was another guy they added on earlier in the week. The Nationals bring in three relievers. Nothing of big note. I mean, of course, you have one name in Hunter Strickland who's been on World Series teams and obviously more known for his fracas with Bryce Harper there a couple of Memorial Days ago. They bring in another reliever, Daniel Hudson, Rowena Elias. 
Cubs try to boost their roster with some left-handed power and a Nick Castellanos from Detroit. And then Milwaukee, they're trying to get some pitching in the worst way. They made a trade with Tampa. And a guy with Jesus Aguilar, who certainly had put up some power numbers in the past, he gets traded, gets sent down to Tampa, which I think is a good pickup for them because they could always use another bat. They trade him for Jake Faria. But, I mean, besides that, you would have thought that the Stroman deal was going to jumpstart to bigger and better things, especially here locally. Because we said, as I said before, with the Yankees and everything that we talked about with their starting rotation, all the names that were rumored to come to New York, whether your name was Marcus Stroman, even Trevor Bauer, certainly not Zach Greinke for the details that I mentioned earlier in the pod, but it was certainly a lackluster ending, although the Greinke was a surprise because it certainly catapulted the Astros to now being the prohibitive favorites in the American League. And as I said before, Red Sox didn't make any moves, especially with their pitching. And as we take a look at the land in both the AL and NL, I mean, again, I'm not going to beat the divisions down because to me it's not going to make any sense. We know the only races that persist in baseball as far as the divisions are concerned are both centrals in the AL and NL. That's going to be a log jam. Although Minnesota and Cleveland both had sweeps over the weekend, they gained two games because last Monday they were just a game behind the Indians, but they stubbed their toe a little bit early in the week. So the Twins now have a three-game lead, and it's going to be interesting because starting on Thursday, four-game series in Minnesota, and they still have 10 more games to be played. In September, they have a back-to-back series. Well, not back-to-back, but they play each other six times in nine days right after Labor Day. So we'll certainly keep our eye on that. And then in the Central, I mean, what could you say there? The Cubs swept the Brewers over the weekend. So the Brewers are certainly taking a step back as their four back. Cardinals for a hot minute actually was in first place on Friday night. But they lost their back to in Oakland where the Cubs right now, you wonder if they will right in the ship to the extent where they will go ahead and see if they can put some distance between them and the Brewers and as well as the Cardinals in the Central. All the other divisions you can just forget about. And when you look at the wild card, we've talked about the National League with the Mets and what they have to go through knowing that Washington is in San Francisco and then Philly's in Arizona. And also keep in mind, later in the week, Philly has to go to San Francisco. So that's another series the Mets are going to look at to see which teams are going to be knocked off as far as losses there are concerned. The Cardinals right now have the first spot in the wild card, followed by the Nats, who are a half game behind them. Tied with them are the Phillies, with the Brewers two back, the Diamondbacks two and a half back, Giants two and a half, and the Mets three. And then in the AL, you have Cleveland up by two. Tampa has the second wild card. The A's are a half game back, and then the Red Sox six and a half, if you want to even include them at this point. And we got these things to change on a dime. We understand that. The Rays have now won six in a row, so that's why they put some distance between them and the Red Sox. So who knows? It could be three teams for two spots there in the AL unless the Red Sox have a last gasp and certainly come charging forward. But uh, it looks like it's going to be a tall order. And this week, the Red Sox fans, are going to, they'll look at the reason why they didn't make it to the postseason this coming year is because of what took place in Boston being swept by the Rays and then losing to the Yankees here over the weekend. And that's pretty much your baseball as we head later into the month. 
and we'll continue to keep our fingers on the pulse of the MLB landscape. Obviously, that's the only sport in town. That's what's happening as we're going through this sports dead zone. Now, I get that the NFL, the football fan is certainly puffing their chest out only because they had a preseason game. I'm not going to get that. I understand you had the pass interference call. They're making a big thing out of that. Well, the first ever pass interference call that was challenged. Oh, come on. I understand they, they want to get some newsworthy items, and we, we get all that. But I didn't watch five seconds of that. And I have to remember, too, unlike in the past, used to play that on a Sunday night game, a lot of these preseason games on the schedule are going to be Thursday into Friday, and you'll get, get the occasional game on Saturday. Because remember, the NFL season starts on a Thursday, so they want to be aligned as far as getting a lot of these preseason games mostly on the schedule on a Thursday, sprinkle in some Friday, and I guess they got some primetime preseason games on Saturday. But uh, certainly I'm not going to pay attention to any of this stuff. Obviously the injuries are going to be part of the mix, which they always are here with the preseason. And you've seen that not only with Giant Camp with the wide receivers, but you've seen that pretty much sprinkled throughout. A.J. Green who tore a ligament in his ankle. It was actually, I believe, the same ankle that was bothering him last year. So he's going to miss a ton of games to start off the season, which is on the first-year coach, Zach Taylor. That's going to be a big loss. You have Tom Brady. I mean, what can you say about him? He just turned 42 two days ago. He's going to make $23 million this year, extended for two more years to 2021, so that'll be through age 44. He did say he wanted to play to 45. And now he's in the mix. No shock. And you know the Pats are going to put their money money where their mouths are. So to me, is that newsworthy? Only because he's finally getting paid, but still doesn't interrupt or impede on the structure of their salary cap because you know they're always going to bring in football players that are tough, versatile, typical Belichick players. So we'll probably see the Patriots sometime in January again in the AFC championship game as we've seen it seems like the last 50 years now a couple other things when the Chargers last week had Melvin Gordon their running back being in a position where he was looking to get more money and when you look at what's happening in Dallas with Ezekiel Elliott and even Michael Thomas who did get paid five years at 100 million for the New Orleans Saints now granted he's a wide receiver not a running back Melvin Gordon was pretty much going to take the stance uh uh-uh He wants to get paid first before anything else. Well, not only has that been put on the docket, but also that he wants to be traded. So that request has gone through. Whether the Chargers are going to honor that or fulfill it, that remains to be seen. But here's a Charger team that certainly had a big year last year, came close to winning the division, but they lost out on the Chiefs. And then, although winning a game in Baltimore in the wildcard round, they were just lambasted in Foxborough. And knowing that, Phillip Rivers is getting a little bit long in the tooth, although he's still a productive player, and his window and opportunity of making the Super Bowl is starting to get smaller and smaller. To have a guy like Melvin Gordon out, and I'm not trying to make him out to be Walter Payton, but to have him out of the lineup is certainly going to be a big blow for this team, knowing that their young running back is looking to take considerable time off if he doesn't get paid, or if not, he wants just to get out of here. Now, I don't know if he's trying to pull a an NBA player empowerment deal, but we've seen that time and time again. Look at what happened with Antonio Brown last year. And speaking of Antonio Brown, how about his foot? He has foot issues. 
where he hasn't been on the field. They're looking forward to getting on the field. There's no timetable as to when, but that's going to be, I'm sure, at the top of the list that uh, NFL Films and Hard Knocks, which is, I believe it starts tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. I think the first one is tomorrow. Maybe next week, who knows? I haven't really paid any attention to it, so uh, you got that to deal with. Uh, any other NFL news and notes? All the Jets and Ryan Khalil, he comes out of retirement one year to take on the center over one Sam Darnold. Obviously, looking at the situation where he feels he could help out a young quarterback, as well as Joe Douglas, the GM of the Jets, having pretty much his first significant contribution to this team after Chris Johnson, the owner, let go of the former GM in Mike McCagnan. So you got that to wrap your arms around Jet fans that actually have some an anchor and some prominence there in that offensive line, which is questionable to say the least. And you have all the games starting here on Thursday, and we'll certainly listen. As far as the game's concerned, I could care less, but I'm sure you're going to see the injuries. I'm sure you're going to see what's going to unfold here throughout the latter part of this summer. And in the Jets and Giants, I believe they played the first game, which they usually play the third preseason game, which is pretty much the tune-up for the regular season, but because they play each other in the regular season, they're playing in this opener. So if you're wondering why the Jets and Giants are playing so soon this year, that's the reason. And uh, so the bragging rights will just not be only for the exhibition season. They're going to wait for the real game, which off the top of my head, I don't even know, but they do play each other this year. And uh, that's pretty much it with the NFL. There's nothing really to get into there. And in the weeks to come, as we get closer, we'll certainly uh, keep you abreast of what's happening and not only that, but the NFL preview. Uh, I'm hoping to have a big one here. So certainly keep your uh, eyes and ears peeled for that. As far as the NBA is concerned, and you had a couple of signings here. CJ McCollum, 3-400, gets his extension, which I believe takes place after the 2021 season because he had two more years left on his deal. So in essence, it's like a five-year deal. So he signs that. Draymond Green signs for 4 for 100, and that's on the heels of Clay Thompson last week, who signed his max deal, I believe, $170 million. Clay was certainly grateful, thankful for that, considering his health and everything that transpired in the finals. So good for Draymond as they keep that core intact. But the one guy who's looking for a team and certainly wants to get back into the league, but kind of wonder does the league want him back? And that's the one Carmelo Anthony. Now, I didn't see the whole interview the other day with Stephen A. Smith on first take. I don't know if that was a, I don't want to say a love letter. It's a little too strong. But it certainly looked like an interview to try to get himself back on any team this year. Preferably a team, of course, he could win. I mean, I don't think he's going to sign with the Atlanta Hawks. But Carmelo, I believe he's finally come to the realization that he is not a starting player anymore in this league. Because that was one of the things that he mentioned. He says, hey, whatever role he'll take, he does want to win. We know that. But here's the thing. How are you going to bring in a 35-year-old guy who's well past his prime, who's going to stand on the perimeter, which we get that's the NBA today, but is not the same ISO player that he once was, certainly can't defend what roster or what team is going to want to put a player like that, even at the league minimum, to be able to make some contributions on the offensive end, which I'm sure he still can do. But how much he has left, I don't know. I thought last year, even after the experiment in Houston didn't work out, I thought maybe Philly would be a good spot for him, only because 
He'll be around the younger guys. Granted that he doesn't have a wealth of postseason experience. Now, Carmelo's played in a lot of postseason games. We get that. But he hasn't played in a lot of big conference finals games. Remember, he hasn't made the postseason in five years. And despite the fact that a lot of the league respects him and reveres a one Carmelo Anthony, obviously with that class of 2003, but at the same time, you know, Carmelo isn't a guy that uh, has a wealth of NBA Finals experience and won titles, etc. So when you look at where Carmelo would fit, and like I said last year, I thought, and even the year before that, I thought Philadelphia would be the perfect fit. But we all know Philly is pretty much has their roster stocked and ready and signed. I don't think they want a 35-year-old guy whose better days are behind him. I don't know if you're going to pull a Vince Carter type of situation and say, hey, I'll play on any team, and God bless Vince Carter for that because he loves the game and he enjoys playing and it's not about rings for him. Where Carmelo, I believe there's a little bit of pride and a little bit of ego knowing that, all right, I can't start anymore, but I can come off the bench for 18 minutes and be that microwave Vinny Johnson of the old Detroit Pistons bad boys days. We don't know because we haven't seen that version of Carmelo Anthony. Can he flourish and thrive in that role? I guess he can, but who's willing to take a chance on him? One team I think would be actually a good fit, and why not? Let it come full circle. Why not him go back to Denver? I think he'd be perfect. I know I said Philly all along, but why not him go back to the Nuggets and nurture the young guys on that team, especially a guy like Nikola Jokic, even Jamal Murray, be that presence. I understand he doesn't want to be a cheerleader. He's going to want to play. And I don't know what the thought process is there in Denver. Obviously, Carmelo's not going to be a guy that's going to get you over the top, but he certainly, I'm sure, will A, sell some tickets to the Denver Nugget faithful that's out there. But why not? It's just another guy you could plug in there for a few minutes. And as long as you tell him what his role is, that he's not trying to revisit Denver in his 2006 to 2009 heyday, then... Everything will be fine. And I don't want to hear about this black ball. I mean, give me a break. There's people even talking about all oh, this black ball. They didn't want him back in the league. I mean, what did Carmelo do for him to be blackballed? You know, this isn't a situation a la Colin Kaepernick or Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf where he's bucking the system or going against the grain where he's become a troublemaker of sorts. No. So for those out there that think that, oh, he's just, they're not going to put him back in the league because they got something against him or there's something wrong. No, this it's just that he's 35 years old. He's not the same player. Can he contribute on a team? Yes, but he's only going to contribute with so much. And that's it. So I'd like to see him back in the league. Contribute somewhere, even on a winning team. Give him his last hurrah. I understand the other thing was the whole scenario about him wanting this farewell tour a la Dwayne Wade. Uh, let's face it. Carmelo's been a great player in this league. We, all, we, we know his whole resume. Farewell tour? I don't think so. No. No, 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 no. So, and people could say, well, hey, he's just as comfortable as Dwayne Wade, has more points, whatever, but obviously he doesn't have the rings, he doesn't have the career that Dwayne Wade has. I mean, Dwayne Wade is arguably one of the top five two guards of all time. Carmelo's just another three that, when it comes to scoring, yeah, but he's not up there with the Larry Birds of the world. He's not up there with, the, obviously, LeBron James of the world. Uh, you go through any of the small forwards, He's not up there on that list. Has he had a very good career? Absolutely. But he's not, a, by far, he's not an immortal player, and he's not a guy that 
I believe, is deserving of a farewell tour. If a team wants to look at Carmelo and say, hey, we want to give you a night, you're coming into our building for the last time, hey, that's their prerogative. But is it an automatic that, oh, geez, he's going to Utah or he's going to be in Sacramento, that right away they got to pull out the red carpet and the video tribute is automatic? No, no, no. Not in the least. And it's not a knock on the man. We're talking about his career here. And he's had a very good one. But if that's the case, then you might as well have, uh, just trying to think, I'm not in NBA mode, but, you know, that's like taking another guy who's been on four or five teams. You know, but hey, bottom line, are they going to have a farewell tour for Vince Carter? I don't think so. So I rest my case there. All right, let's see what else I have before I sign off. Uh, that's with the NBA. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I was going to mention about this article of fighting in the NHL, uh, ESPN, Greg Wisniewski, but am I going to waste my breath over it? Maybe I'll talk about it some other time, but ESPN, if you just type in Greg Wisniewski, I believe he's the NHL writer on there, he talks about how fighting, uh, well, it's called the new normal. That's pretty much how we titled it, and pretty much it just details how fighting has not been a part of the game. It's dropped to historic lows that even you had former enforcers and former tough guys talking about how they like the sport the way it is today, that they don't want it to go back to the, the fisticuffs. And one of them was Daniel Carcillo, who's had his own uh, personal issues off the ice in reference to what he had to endure through his career. Um, what could you say? The, I, I won't get into it. Maybe somewhere down the road where I could tie it into something else. I'm trying to get some people on to talk about fighting in the NHL because everybody knows I'm a huge proponent of it. But uh, if you want to check it out and certainly want to get some feedback, you know where to find me. I'll mention in... Uh, where you could uh, send me an email for the first timers listening to the podcast. And if you want to reach out to me and we could discuss it, please feel free. Uh, but before we say goodbye, uh, two things the hero and zero of the week. So those are the two things that would be tied up in one. My hero of the week goes to a one, Nick Bonacani. And Nick Bonacani is a former Miami Dolphins player, played on that no name defense, the only undefeated team in NFL history. The 72 Dolphins certainly was a linchpin on that defense. Linebacker, tough guy, but a good guy overall. And we know what he went through post-career with his son being paralyzed there in college, inside the NFL, all that. Just a huge loss for the NFL. Nick Bonacani at 78. He's my hero of the week. And I understand a lot of these heroes that I've talked about over, let's say, the past couple of months have been guys who have left us. But we got to give them their just due. And I feel that Bonacani, obviously I didn't watch him plays before my time. But inside the NFL was a staple. I used to watch that all the time. Him and Len Dawson. Later on, Chris Collinsworth came in. Gary Myers, Jerry Glanville, the whole list. But those are the two guys that anchored that program. And he was part of my football life as a teenager and to a young adult. So it's just sad to hear of his passing. Uh, My thoughts and condolences go out to him and his family. And my zero of the week. And this is the dreaded quotes out of context and sensationalized and so on and so forth. But... When you're David Griffin, the former GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers, and SI gets a hold of you to talk about a story detailing what you experienced as far as being the GM of a team that finally won a championship, and we all know the ramifications that they were down 3-1, etc. We get it. 73-9, Golden State Warriors. But with David Griffin and him having to say that it was a headache and that it was 
miserable being the GM of the team. And I get that he wasn't trying to just single out LeBron James as he apologized afterwards. And it wasn't just about LeBron. It was just about the day-to-day scrutiny of this team. But we look at some of those quotes. I believe that was just strictly on emotion and what he experienced. And for him to say, oh, it was out of context, we understand that that's the fallback uh, cop-out position, for lack of a better word. But you know what? We get that he still talks to LeBron to this day. LeBron actually had a post right before that article came out congratulating David Griffin's wife over some sort of honor that she received. I don't remember what it was off the top of my head, but at the same time, when the story came out, then LeBron said, hey, that's it. Now he's going to try to silence all the haters and the doubters and so on and so forth. I don't know if that was a dig at David Griffin, but Griffin, he knows that anytime he's going to go up against the best player of this generation, it's certainly going to be a no-win situation. So for him, and I get that he was being honest and he was being open and credit to him and kudos to him, but to backtrack on that, and I understand he's not going to come out and say like, well, yeah, I said it. What is he going to do? All right, I know, I know that too. But yeah, he, he certainly should have calculated his words a little bit better by just sticking it to the team or not sticking it to the team, but putting the correlation to the team, the pressure, being miserable, the scrutiny, everything, and not just specifically on the player because he did single out LeBron saying that after winning that title, uh, he didn't think his heart was in it. Uh, That's pretty strong words to say uh, when you're talking about the guy who's not only been the franchise in Cleveland and won a title, but uh, to say that afterwards is, uh, yeah, it's a pretty bold statement. So to retract on that, that's my zero of the week for one David Griffin. All right, and as I sign off, people, thank you very much for downloading and listening to this content. It goes without saying how much I appreciate your love and support of this program. And one way that you could do even that much more besides listening is to contribute on any of the platforms that you follow, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, CastBox, whatever it may be. And all I ask of you to do is to leave a rating, post a review, Whatever it may be, I would sincerely and greatly appreciate it because I do monitor those things from time to time, the various platforms, just to see if there's not only any type of feedback, but also any type of reviews because all that's going to do, people, is increase the visibility of this program and hopefully that will generate interest for future guests because the more that this podcast is out there, the more that it's visible, the more I can get the former athlete, the current athlete, God willing, as well as the broadcaster, the writer, the blogger, whomever it may be. And without your contribution, I tell you, uh, I'll still be here doing it no matter what, but uh, because I'm an independent outlet here where I write, host, edit, produce, everything, uh, with your contribution, it certainly goes above and beyond anything that I could ever ask for. So I uh, thank you ahead of time. And if you need to reach out to me for any way, shape, or form, questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, you could do so at these social media sites or my accounts at JReels Instagram, JReels1, just the number on Twitter, the JReels Podcast on my Facebook page, and an email address at the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. Don't be shy. Feel free to do so. And again, don't be shy to do so with the aforementioned platforms that you listen to your podcast on because again all that's going to do is just increase the visibility of the podcast and i certainly appreciate all your support as i deliver each and every week here and hopefully more than once a week especially if i get a guest everything that's happening in the world of the diamond the world of the ice the world of the gridiron the world of the golf course racetrack hardwood tennis court you name it from my lips to your ears from my heart to your soul from where i am to wherever you are the j rose podcast always comes correct direct and in full effect 
from the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J-Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>